Good morning. This is lesson 24 in our study. I've titled it All About Authority. Who does Jesus think he is? But I want to, uh, I want to go back to last week because I, I have uh, thought about it. I, I sort of presented a chronological problem and then just said I, I can't remember what the solution is. And that bothered me a bit because I actually worked through it to where I did have a solution this past week, and, and I'll put that in print in last Sunday's message. But this is the kind of thing that skeptics love to get their hands on, some college professor who points to this and says, see, this is why the Bible is full of errors and contradictions. So let me just give you a hint as to how I would go about this. There is an alleged chronological conflict in the sense that Matthew presents the cursing of the fig tree as a one-time event. Mark presents it as a two-time event, or at least I should say he presents it in two pieces. And we conclude that means it's a two-time event. And uh, so I think the solution comes from following the argument, if I may say so, connecting the dots in Matthew and in Mark, to see the argument that each of them develops and to distinguish the two arguments. So let me just take you this far. Each author not only selects what material he will present, but in what order he will present that material. John, you remember, 20 says, in effect, I I had this whole sea of information, but I've chosen these things that you might see that Jesus is the Christ. Selective. But they also have the elective choice of how they present that chronologically. And uh, let me just make another couple of observations that actually bear on the chronology. When you look at the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree, comparing Matthew and Mark, there's an interesting comparison. Cleansing of the temple gets four verses in Mark, six verses in Matthew. Cursing of the fig tree gets ten verses in Mark, five verses in Matthew. Now, there's some other factors that come to play in that, but the bottom line is this. When one looks at the account, you have to conclude Matthew's emphasis is on the cleansing of the temple and its implications for Jerusalem. Mark's focus is on the cursing of the fig tree and its implications for disciples, namely prayer. Belief and forgiveness as it relates to prayer. And just to give you an illustration of that, when you come to Matthew chapter 23, the indictment of of the religious system and of Jerusalem, 39 verses. Same material is dealt with in Mark chapter 12, three verses. Now, what that tells you is each author has his own emphasis and point of view that he's trying to make. And so that becomes at least a clue to what you can read in print if you choose. But the bottom line is this. You will either have to say that Matthew's chronology is determinative and we must read Mark in that light, or you must see Mark's chronology as determinative and you must read Matthew in that light, but they do not contradict. That's the thing. And my point is, if one studies enough, 
These kinds of things become apparent, but that's where the skeptics like to jump in. Now, to our text. Uh, I, I think that the religious leaders of Jerusalem have an identity crisis. When you think of the, of the ministry of John the Baptist at its beginning, as recorded in John chapter 1, they are asking John the Baptist this question, who are you? You know, are, are you the prophet? Are you this one? Are you that one? And John keeps clarifying that point. When you get to our point in the text, the question is now an identity question related to Jesus. But it's a little more pointed and a little more hostile. Just who do you think you are doing these things? And those two actually converge in our text, as we'll see in the, in the end verses 20, 27, uh, and following in, in, uh, chapter 11. Those verses converge and you have the identity of John and the identity of Christ intertwined and that's why Jesus will go to them about who John is and what his authority is or what his source of authority is. Now, I won't take the time to do so, but when I was studying, I went through and literally every chapter in Mark adds to our sense of the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just give you samples. Chapter 1, introduced by John the Baptist as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's pretty authoritative, I think. And in the latter part of chapter 1, remember Jesus is teaching and a demonized man uh, uh, bursts out and Jesus casts the demon out. And here's what they said. This man teaches with authority and not like the scribes. Ooh, ouch. Okay, so that's the question that's going to arise here in our text. Chapter 2, Jesus says to the man lowered through the roof, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who has the authority to forgive sins? So Jesus says that you might know that I have the authority. I say to you, take up your your bed and walk. Chapter 4, Even the winds and the waves obey him. So the disciples say, who is this? They're not saying it like the the religious leaders. They're saying, wow, who is this one? Chapter 8, great confession. Peter now answers, I know who you are. You are the Christ. Chapter 9, the transfiguration. That ought to give a guy a little authority. I mean, who you associate with certainly has something to do with your status, doesn't it? If you're, if you're humdrumming around with Moses and Elijah, you're up there in the big leagues, folks. And, uh, chapter 11. I want to say something about chapter 11 in light of a text I should have looked at more carefully. But I was reading through the Old Testament and I finished Malachi last week. Listen to these verses, uh, because you remember Malachi chapter 4, I'm going to send my messenger and so on, and we know that's John the Baptist. Listen to these words in Malachi 3. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, 
And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, religious leaders, system, uh, and uh, refine them like gold and silver so that they may present the Lord offerings in righteousness. When you come to the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple, my, my friends, Jesus is declaring himself to be that one with authority. And it is no surprise that when Jesus sets foot in Jerusalem, he starts cleaning house. So Jesus makes a bold claim to authority. And these characters are now saying, wait a minute. Who do you think you are doing these things? And I take it these things means in particular, in the context of Mark, triumphal entry, cleansing temple. So that's pretty significant stuff. What was the anticipated outcome? What did these guys think they were going to achieve? Well, let me give you some possible answers. I notice that here, now when in John chapter 2, first cleansing of the temple, they ask for a sign. They have been asking for signs at various points, but they'll never ask for a sign again when he sets foot in Jerusalem. After he's there, they don't ask for a sign. Maybe they don't want to see one at that point. Although Jesus had said just before that, you get one last sign, and that sign is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus could claim his deity, but when we look at all of the accounts, in particular Matthew's at this moment, nobody looked at the Lord Jesus as the Son of God. They looked at him as the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They looked at him in some way that was exalted, but nobody welcomed him, as I perceive it, as the Son of God who comes to possess his house. And here's what I'm thinking they're hoping. I think they hope he will say the same thing he said at the first cleansing of the temple, which was, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. you got to understand, that temple was really sacred ground. And for Jesus to do that, remember it was uh, uh, both Jesus and Stephen who were accused of speaking against the temple. It was Paul who was accused of defiling the temple. If Jesus dared to say anything about that temple, it was over, they thought. And so he did not. In effect, what they're saying is, by the way, you notice that they asked the question twice, by what authority are you doing these things? And that probably may be, what what authority do you have in, in, within yourself? And the second is, who gave you this authority? Now remember, these fellows think of themselves as the accreditation agency for all religious activity. They sell the franchises for religious endeavors. So who does Jesus think he is? taking this kind of leadership, throwing people out of the temple, possessing it himself to teach and to heal, where did he get that authority? And uh, what they're really saying is, Jesus, I'd like to know who your references are on your resume. Who is it that you can cite, certainly not us, 
Who is it that you can cite as the, the basis for your authority? Now think about this. Jesus' authority and John's authority, Jesus' identity and John's identity are very much intertwined. Would you not agree? So, you see, John the Baptist introduced Jesus. Jesus and John had the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Same message. Two of John's disciples are now Jesus' disciples. And Herod, when Jesus comes along, after he had killed uh, John the Baptist, Herod concluded that Jesus was John the Baptist, raised from the dead. So the connection between those two men is incredibly great. Their approval of Jesus, therefore, must somehow take into account their estimation of John. And therein is the problem. So Jesus asks them, well, you are the authorities. Who, in your opinion, was John and what was the basis of his authority? Now, I have to admit, it's probably my carnality, but that's one of the ones I'm going to instant replay in heaven. I'm going to watch this scene over and over, and I'm going to giggle through all of it. To watch these guys squirm. You know, here are these guys who are the know-it-alls, the power brokers, the big boys, who pronounced everything. And and now here they are. It's, It's like taking a case to the Supreme Court. And all justices shrugged their shoulders and said, we don't know. What do you do? And, and it's like perhaps in the football game today. There is one, I think, isn't there? In the football game today, it's like some play and all the referees huddle up in the middle of the field while everybody else waits and watches. And they're all talking to themselves, you know, whatever. And, and the way Arian read it, it's just about right. These guys are whispering themselves, man, what are we going to say? And and the people are thinking, why all this delay? What's this thing? And everybody sees the huddle. They know these guys are sweating bullets. And, and, uh, of course, that's part of our pleasure. I think the crowd really got to like that last week for a while. They really liked to watch Jesus take these guys down several pegs, as it were. But they say to themselves, look, we were stuck. If we say that John has God's authority, then he's obviously going to say, then why don't you believe John? Because John accredited me. They can't go there because that's not what they believe. But they're politicians, folks, more than they're prophets. And they're saying, if we say that John's authority was not from God, but only the authority of man, they're going to kill us. So after a lot of consternation and browbeating, they say the one thing a know-it-all never wants to say, we don't know. You can imagine what that must have had an outcome for them. So the bottom line is this. Jesus wins, they lose. Jesus gains authority, they lose authority. They're in big trouble. Now, I call this a digression on my part, but you have to see this. This is why you need to read the parallel accounts immediately placed, inserted between the end of Mark chapter 11 and the parable that begins at chapter 12. 
Matthew includes these verses in chapters 28 through 33, uh, uh, chapter 21, verses 28 through 33. And he tells this story to them. Now, this is what I call the, the one-two punch. If the big punch came, the right-hand punch came in, in the, uh, at the end in our text in 27 through 33 of, of chapter 11, the, the left-hand punch drops here in Matthew 21. He follows up on this John the Baptist business. And he says, there's a, a father who says to his son, go work in my vineyard. And his son says, no way. But he thinks about it, he repents, and he works. The second son says to his father at the same command, okay, dad, I'll do it. But he re repents. <laughs> he doesn't do it. And the way that Jesus tells this story is fascinating because he tells it as though the second son observes the first son's repentance. And yet he does not learn from it. So he says the uh, of these two sons, which of the sons obeys his father, does his father's will? Well, everybody agrees. Obviously, it's the son who repents. So Jesus says this. The prostitutes and the tax collectors will get into the kingdom of God before you, I put do. I don't think he means they'll get there first. He's not saying that. He's saying they'll get there, but you're not getting there. They get there in, 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 in preference, in, in, in contrast to you. So here you are. The religious uppity-ups, the great authorities are now told that the worst that society has to offer are going to get there. And here's the reason. Listen to it. He says, the prostitutes listened to what John the Baptist said, and they repented. The tax collectors listened to what John said, and they repented. You, the other brother... You've observed how all of these people have believed in John and his message and they've repented, but you won't. So they're not making it. Tax collectors and prostitutes are. I, the reason I'm telling you this story is it, it's obviously applicable in the sense, do you gain the sense of how hard Jesus is hitting here? These guys are not walking away thinking, well, I wasn't so bad. This is ugly stuff. So Jesus now tells a parable in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Interestingly, we are told Jesus again begins to speak in parables. We know in Matthew chapter, uh, uh, Mark chapter 4, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus began to speak in parables after he was accused of operating under the power and authority of Satan. Now we have Jesus returning to parables. This is one of the parables, and there are others. It's the one that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all chose to uh, include in their text. A landowner plants a vineyard. Uh, does all of the preparation, the the, uh, the uh, tower and 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 the vat for the wine and whatever, 
And then he leases that out to tenants. And as you know, what would happen is the tenants would do the labor and the owner would get a percentage, a portion of the harvest of the crop. He sends his representatives to collect his rightful share as the owner and the tenants refuse to pay, abuse those representatives, kill some. And eventually there is the son of the owner left He says, surely they will hear my son. When the son comes, they say to themselves, he's the owner. If we kill him, we not only get the produce of this, we get to own it. Interestingly, in the last days, Jesus moves heavily on the subject of stewardship versus ownership. And that's huge because their ministry was a stewardship, but they began to see it as ownership. And so they, of course, reject the son and his authority as will. They kill the son to inherit the property. The interesting thing is everybody agrees what ought to happen. In our text and in Luke's text, it's Jesus who says they're going to take, they're going to go and destroy the tenants and then they're going to give that vineyard over to somebody else. In Matthew's gospel, it's Jesus who asked the question, what should the landowner do? And the people say, you ought to go kill those tenants and you ought to give that to somebody else. And Jesus says, that's right. That's the way it is. And the people understood. They understood. In fact, in uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 16, the people said, oh, may this never happen. Hey, they're not caring about the bad boy uh, in the story. They understand that Jesus is, is using that as an analogy of what's happening in Israel. And they understand he's threatening to take away from these leaders and whatever that which they had. Here is the fascinating thing, folks. I want you to turn to Psalm 118. Jesus quotes the uh, Psalm 118 in verse 10 and 11 of our text Have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Go back to Psalm 118 and notice something very, very interesting. He's citing Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Do you see it there in your text? Drop down two verses. O Lord, doth, uh, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Do we remember those verses? They're cited by Mark in chapter 11 at the triumphal entry. Jesus is tying together two parts of one psalm. One that relates to who he is and his authority as he comes, and the second to the fact that that authority will be rejected by men. And the one who is rejected is the one who will be the head of the household. Most interesting. The parable is about authority, is it not? The reality is the tenants refuse to accept the authority of the owners. And they disobeyed. 
parables here change. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus told the parables to instruct his disciples and keep the people in the dark. Notice the disciples aren't even mentioned here. And we're told the opponents get it. Now Jesus speaks of his death in parabolic terms so that his opponents understand Jesus knows exactly what we're about. <laughs> and I think the disciples are off in la-la land somewhere because this is not for them to really get a hold of. You can imagine Peter, he'd be sharpening his knife at this point. So it's the leaders and the people who seem to be getting this point. They want so badly to kill Jesus. But there's no way at this point of Jesus' popularity that they're going to pull it off. So they fade back, cease the questions from their point of view, at least for the moment, and Jesus wins. And they lose big time. It's enjoyable, isn't it? To read a text like this about the bad guys getting it, it, it just sort of, you come away just feeling warm and fuzzy and, and oh, it's so comfortable. And boy, did they deserve it. Well, there may be some things in the text for us. While it's a pleasure for us to observe, the question is still the same. The critical question when it comes to Jesus is who is he? And what is his authority? Is it not? It all comes down to that. Who is Jesus? And what is his authority? The interesting thing about our culture is, one, we hate that kind of authority. All right, let's put it. You know the only reason I didn't put it in your notes? I couldn't squeeze sovereignty into the PowerPoint. That's what it means, doesn't it? To be sovereign is to have absolute authority. We in the West, and in particular in America, we know nothing of rulers who have absolute power. And if they say the word, not one, not ten, hundreds, thousands may die. Absolute authority. Nobody questions it. But you see, that is the authority our Lord Jesus has. He has absolute authority. And if he does, we better submit and obey. And if he doesn't, then rightly we reject him and walk away. But it's interesting that in our text, we're not left with the option that Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, a moral leader, none of that middle ground stuff. He either is who he claims to be, or he is not, and he deserves rejection. And so for anyone here who may not have heard the gospel before, or those who may have heard it many times, that's the question. The question that we're going to be asked when we stand before God is, what do you make of my son? Who is Jesus Christ? If he is the son of God with absolute full authority, who died on the cross of Calvary, we better bow the knee to him, we better trust in him, and we better obey him. That authority should give us a great sense of humility, not a sense of arrogance, because it is his authority. I, I love that text in, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, where you have the centurion, and he speaks to Jesus, and he doesn't say, 
as we tend to read it, I too am a man who has authority. (laughs) He says, I too am a man under authority. See, that's a very different distinction for a leader. When you understand, like Peter is saying, he's the chief shepherd. We're under shepherds. That brings humility to leadership, not arrogance to leadership. Should be seen in here, our humility, our submission, our obedience, and in the gospel that we preach and how we preach it. You see, if he is who he says he is, then we better be careful because Paul says when he preaches the gospel, he doesn't do it like a huckster. He doesn't do it like a used car salesman selling a piece of junk where you shuck and jive and you say all kinds of, uh, of stuff that people like to hear, but the reality is it's junk. You're just trying to persuade people to believe in something that isn't worth anything. Paul says we are ambassadors And we ought to proclaim the gospel as proclaiming it for one who has all authority. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples. We make disciples by proclaiming his authority. And that gives us confidence, it gives us boldness, and it gives us directness. Not slippery, slimy language. Not some kind of bait-and-switch evangelism. You know, not 55 verses of just as I am and neon signs in the front. Proclaim Christ for who He is and call upon men. And the reality is, folks, the gospel is a command to believe. The gospel is a command to believe. And, and that's the way John came out of the, you know, out of the, the stocks, and that's the way Jesus came out. Believe. Repent and believe. Now, obviously, we need to be sensitive to people. There's all kinds of things that could be said. But underlying it all, the question is, is our presentation of the gospel worthy of the one who has all authority? We represent him not only by what we say, but by what we do and how we say it. And if there's anyone here who has never trusted in that Savior and that gospel, do so. But doesn't that give you confidence? When we live in a world that's coming apart at the seams, we don't know what's going on, we know this much. Jesus is in control. And that's all we need to know. Father, thank you so much for these words. Thank you for the greatness of the Savior in whom we have placed our trust whom we are following, whom we proclaim. If there's anyone who has not yet placed their trust in him, may they see him for who he is and submit to him by believing in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.